after nearly eight years, Yoshihide Suga has officially been named Prime Minister. Following the surprise resignation of Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, any questions of political continuity were quickly resolved by the selection of former Chief Cabinet Secretary Suga Yoshihide as Japan's new Prime Minister. Several of Shinzo Abe's ministers will keep their jobs, including... Not only was there continuity in cabinet ministers between the two administrations, but Prime Minister Suga himself announced his intentions to stay the course and to follow through on his predecessor's policies. Still, this transition comes at a pivotal time in East Asian politics. As Japan has repositioned itself in the region between China and the United States, the coronavirus pandemic continues to disrupt local economies, and the looming U.S. presidential election could reshape politics in the region all over again. How has Japan's foreign and economic policy changed over the last two decades? What role did former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo play in charting a new course for Japan within East Asian trade relations, and what impact will a new Prime Minister have on Japan's policies? And finally, how might a change in U.S. administrations impact regional politics in East Asia? I'm Tristan Gurnow, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the future of Japanese foreign and trade policies, I talked with Dr. Saori Katada, Professor of International Relations at the University of Southern California. Dr. Katada is the author most recently of Japan's New Regional Reality, Geoeconomic Strategy in the Asia-Pacific now available from Columbia University Press. I started by asking Dr. Katata to outline how Japan's regional strategies had changed even before the Abe administration. Yes, I would say that Japan was already for a new strategy since the early 2000s. This was a time of Prime Minister Koizumi, and he took advantage of that already. I would say that Prime Minister Abe was at the right place at the right time in the sense that he was ready to take a new, very assertive strategy, and the institutions in Japan were ready for that. And this was a way to shape the regional economic order in a liberal turn, which is exemplified by things like the TPP-11, which is the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement among the major powers in the region without the United States. U.S. was the one which led this process early on from 2010 forward, but President Trump actually took U.S. out of it as he came to the office in January 2017. So Japan and the Prime Minister Abe took this on and actually managed to arrive at uh, TPP-11, uh, or official name is Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement on Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP, which is the mouthful. So this was a way for Japan to really make a mark, the hero of the liberal international economic order, providing rule-based arrangement, rule-based order in the region for trade and investment. In my book, what I argue here is that Japan actually utilized the U.S.-China competition and served as a strategic and pivotal role in favor of liberal order. Because of the different systems, different order that China is pushing in the context of the region, and U.S. being still present as the rule provider of this region, Japan was able to use that in its advantage to shape the regional order. What's happening in Japan is quite important. 
in the last 25 years, there has been a significant domestic transformation. You know, when people were not looking, Japan changed quite a bit from a trading nation to an investing nation on one side, where big businesses are somewhat decoupling from the government lead and taking its own initiative in many ways. And at the same time, in a political context, there has been institutional changes, which makes the policy or both domestic and foreign, but especially foreign policy, more consolidated and uniform under the political leadership. And as you mentioned, some of these are changes that have been happening even beyond Abe or before Abe. And so was he advancing these policies in any way or how did he react to the policies when he came into office? Prime Minister Abe was very smart in utilizing the environment that he was provided. So on one side, it was a domestic policymaking environment where the prime minister's cabinet office now has become the center of policymaking, which was not the case in the past where bureaucracy, the ministries with different interests was fighting with each other. While streamlining of that institution was very useful for prime minister and the political leaders to utilize in its foreign policy implementation. On the other hand, obviously, in the context of the region, as China has risen in many ways, and the tension between U.S. and China manifest itself not only in terms of the trade deficit and so on, but also in the realm of rulemaking, how to think about the rule of the game, how to set the rules of the game for trade and investment, infrastructure and so on. That really put the stage for Japan and under Prime Minister Abe in 2000, from December 2012 to uh, push Japan's agenda forward. In previous episodes with Dr. David Leone, he was talking about how, especially with Koizumi, but then even more with Abe too, perhaps we're seeing the cultivation of the prime minister as a central figure, almost in a kind of presidential type of environment. And, and I know there's been previous work talking about, well, maybe Koizumi was trying to turn the prime ministership into more of a presidential role. But in that case, it was always more about the, the personality of the person. Are you saying that perhaps under Abe, with the cabinet taking a more active policymaking role? Was this turning the prime minister's office into more of a presidential executive role for Japan? I think one can say that obviously the prime minister himself, it hasn't, there has not been a female prime minister yet, so I could say himself. Uh, the prime minister himself has to have good political tactics, political skills to stay in the office because policymaking takes you know, a certain time and one has to stay in the office a longer time. So both Koizumi and Abe being able to stay in the office through the you know, various domestic instruments of Abenomics for the case of Abe, you know, Koizumi, you know, the many reforms and so on, I think that really gave them the power to implement a very streamlined prime minister-centered foreign policy during their period. And you mentioned specifically the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Americans had started. And I think this was started under President Obama. And then, as you mentioned, President Trump pulled the United States out of it. And since then, as you're talking about, Japan kind of stepped in. Do you mind giving a little bit more detail about you know, what role was Japan taking in the TPP? And then what is the current status of it? Yes, actually, TPP started from what's called P4 among Chile, New Zealand, Singapore, and Brunei, whose GDP combined only lead up to 1% of the global GDP. 
while United States saw this to be a very high standard free trade agreement and got on board with it under Obama after the global financial crisis in 2010. Japan was quite hesitant to join due to the agricultural sector's resistance. And it took a few years. Japan flooded with it under Prime Minister Khan in 2010. But it took until the LDP coming into leadership and then Prime Minister Abe stepping in for Japan to be able to get on board with it in 2013. It took another two years for the negotiation to go forward because there were 12 countries, including United States and Japan, and obviously excluding China and various other countries around the Pacific. And finally, in October 2015, they managed to lead to the agreement and signing was done within six months. But that was 2016. Obviously, the U.S. election kicked in, Trump got elected, and he took the U.S. out. The TPP is quite significant in the size, which captures about 40% of global GDP, and also the ways in which it provides very high standard of many of the, again, rules of the trade and investment game. You know, protection of intellectual property rights is very stringently protected, or e-commerce, which is the you know, cutting-edge issues of ordering online, or all those things, all the rules about these things have been laid out in this 30-chapter agreement. Once the U.S. left the TPP, Prime Minister Abe and Japan, along with countries like New Zealand and Australia, various uh, others who are promoters of TPP, got together and managed to agree with 11 countries without the U.S. This was the time when President Trump was bashing WTO and using bilateral instruments to pressure various countries, steal tariffs, and so on and so forth. Japan was hailed as the hero in protecting and maintaining the international liberal order, which is really ironic because Japan used to be the villain and bad guy when it comes to trade, as it was told, no, it was said in the 1980s into 1990s even, that Japan was violating all the rules, you know, taking advantage of the open system and not really following any of the fair rules of the game. As you mentioned, the LDP was at first a little reluctant to sign on to the TPP because of the agricultural opposition. I understand that, you know, the LDP often relies on voters in the agricultural areas of Japan, which would explain why they were hesitant to sign on to it. But with the U.S. withdrawing, was this a chance for Abe in Japan to assert itself into regional politics a bit more in terms of economic policy? Or what explains why they even went against their own, what you might say, electoral interest in embracing it so strongly? I think there are various interests associated with Japan getting on board with TPP and pushing this forward. On one side, it's the regional dynamics, right? Japan needed TPP in order to get upper hand in making liberal rules as the standard for the region. China has been not following these rules, and now that Japan has a lot of investment around the region, if it weren't for these rules, it would be very difficult for uh, Japanese businesses to operate effectively in this region. So it's on one side. On the other hand, from the domestic perspective, the way in which the policymaking was streamlined 
allowed Abe to push this forward. For example, until Abe came into the office and utilized the new institutional format to put the TPP task force or headquarters under the cabinet secretariat, all the free trade agreements were negotiated or coordinated among the four ministries, foreign ministry, finance ministry, ministry of agriculture, you know, agriculture and you know, forestry and fishery, as well as ministry of economy and trade and industry. And MAFA, which is the agricultural ministry, was the one which always dragged its feet not to have aggressive free trade agreement agreed. But Abe could you know, manage that kind of a position by utilizing, again, the new institutional structure. And so you were talking about you know, how Abe was able to maneuver these things. But of course, he's no longer in office after resigning in just in the last couple of weeks. And so he's been replaced by longtime chief cabinet secretary Suga Yoshihide. And so I'm curious, do you anticipate much change in course for Japan with Suga in office now? Well, short answer to that question is no. First of all, the new prime minister, Suga, is already said that he would stay the course. Uh, his priority overall is to promote stability. And that applies not only the domestic policy, but on the foreign policy. Everybody talks about him not having that much foreign policy experiences, and many worry about that. But he was the cabinet secretary under Abe throughout the whole time from 2012. And that's where all the task forces, the headquarters of all these foreign policy you know, decision-making take place. So TPP headquarters there and so on and so forth. So having overseen some of that, I'm sure he has quite a significant knowledge and experience related to foreign policy. So that's, you know, I think he would stay the course along with what Abe's promoted during his prime ministership. In addition, the foreign minister is Foreign Minister Motegi, is the person who's been the foreign minister since 2019. And also before that, he was the state minister of economics and fiscal policy. He's the one who actually negotiated this new CPTPP, the TPP-11 with the United States. So there's very significant continuity in his cabinet. And also Prime Minister Suga himself has some significant knowledge. So I don't think uh, there'll be that much of a change taking place after Abe stepped down and new prime minister coming in. And speaking of changes in, in administrations, of course, uh, I mean, the U.S. is also potentially facing a change in administration now with the U.S. election in November fewer than 50 days away now. How might a change in U.S. presidential administrations impact this newfound position for Japan within East Asia? And so you're assuming that there'll be a change in the administration in the U.S., huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fine. Just, just kidding. I'm sorry. Okay, let, let, let me respond. Uh, so Japan will always be influenced by the United States, even when there are some sense of Japan becoming more independent from the U.S. influence. But I would say that U.S. influence is still quite significant. For example, when even the same Prime Minister Abe had different take on economic strategy under President Obama, where he was much more interested in the kind of rulemaking type of strategy, while under President Trump, Japanese strategy kind of shifted more towards security-oriented trade and investment strategy. So over, overall, yes, the U.S. election will influence Japanese economic policy overall. But let's assume you know, if the Democrat Biden wins, then I would say that there will be some burden lift off from the Japanese shoulders for a little bit. 
at least the Democrat, you know, possible President Biden, is more into providing kind of a multilateral arrangement to protect liberal economic order in the region. So I don't know if he will go back to TPP, but he and his advisors or you know, the State Department and so on would be clearly interested in giving some level of commitment, putting rules, you know, economic rules, trade, investment, intellectual property rights, you know, environment, labor protection, and so on and so forth into this regional dealing. So you know, I think that would be somewhat you know, burden lifted off of Japanese shoulders, even though you know, Japan will continue to make sure that such order, such rules would be in place and promoted in the region. This is really an important way in which Japan can deal with China without having major conflict. This is a way where China can actually prosper as it becomes another big investor nation in the region. And they would like to have their assets, businesses and investment and so on being protected around this region too. So, uh, you know, in some ways, it's kind of a win-win and I would not see Japan changing the course. In the last few months with COVID and the questions about the supply chain ongoing, there has been for at least several years now, the notion of decoupling between the United States and China are being discussed. So if the U.S. is trying to shift and at least you know, reduce its dependence on the Chinese production, this would be a time that this might kick in. Japan's government is also worried about that, and actually it created some funding to subsidize businesses, which would either bring the manufacturing back to Japan or diversify it into other countries within Southeast Asia, India, and Bangladesh. So there are some efforts being taken in this area. But at the same time, China will continue to be a very important part of the regional economy and its consumer base itself will continue to be very important as the country getting richer and the people are buying more within China. So overall, despite of some of these new challenges and changes, the coupling possibility and so on, I would still argue, as I do kind of based on my book, which doesn't get to COVID because it was published in July, but basically this strategy that Japan has developed over the course of the last 10, 15 years remains to be a very important part of how the actors within the region shape the regional economic order. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.